You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers for The Athletic and MMA, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, a lot of people over on the Patreon considering it pretty on-brand, the way the UFC 241 fight watch party fell apart on Saturday night. See, Crashed and burned. This is a this is the good news about us I'll say creating a certain kind of expectation with our audience is that when we completely screw something up, they're not that surprised. Yeah. They're maybe even a little bit entertained. Well, not as entertained as they would have been if we had actually maybe done the fight party. But well, that's that's debatable. Yeah. Who knows how that would have gone. That's true. You even brought over... You brought over... Oh, I pulled out all the stops on refreshments. I was ready to go. Snack-wise... I have no complaints with what you did. Yeah. You brought over Twizzlers. You brought over chocolate chip cookies. You brought over some some beers. What you didn't bring over, though, was any of the camera equipment, sound equipment that makes the watch party possible. See, what had happened was, I assumed that you would have taken that with you on See, Friday. You made an ass of you and me. Well, it's, you did. it's your camera. You're the one who sets it up. I don't know the how to use it. It to the Commandment Podcast. I thought that you had taken it home on Friday... So I didn't uh, bring it over on Saturday night for the UFC 241 watch party. Hence, no UFC 241 watch party. I mean, you feel free the next time we do this to bring the equipment home with you. My wife and I, we won't make our live cam porno just that one night. And you can... uh, (laughs) Well, that's going to disappoint some different Patreon subscribers, I'm sure. Uh, Let's just say we all learned some valuable lessons from this incident. Yeah, we did. We all did. It would have been a great one to uh, to live stream, too, because there were some surprises. There were some great fights. There was uh, a lot of potential for commentary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And now I guess we'll just have to save it here, such as the the live commentary I most distinctly remember you making, which was during Stipe Miocic's post-fight speech, where you just kind of shook your head sadly and said, just a bunch of marbles in a blender. Yep. Well, that's always, that's like the standard Steve Miocic post-fight interview. It sounds like somebody poured a bunch of lug nuts in a blender and <laughs> put it on the, the the cool whip setting or something. I don't even know. Can't understand a word that guy says, ever. Meanwhile, you got other people out here doing post-fight interviews in three different languages. Hey guys, a great way to look fresh and toss a little money in the CME coffers is to pick up a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes or Dundasso t-shirt over at uh, Cotton Bureau, available on demand all the time whenever you want them. Just go to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. We got music again this week from longtime listener and friend of the show, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on the episode, you can check out more over at SoundCloud.com slash H or S-T-H-L-M Ross. Stockholm Ross. Stockholm Ross. That's the guy. Yep. See, we got a lot of we got a lot to talk about this week. We do. UFC 241 filled us with topics. Poured topics over the side of the boat. We got topics on top of topics. So we got three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, what's next for the UFC heavyweight title? After Stipe Miocic 
finally figured out that Daniel Cormier's game plan was to block every single punch with his body and face. And in round number two, I, for one, welcome our new overlords from the Nick Diaz army and hope that Nathan is both benevolent and merciful in his position as Supreme High Commander. And in round number three, did y'all see when Yoel Romero pointed one way and then tried to punch Paulo Costa with his other hand like a big brother yelling, look out behind you, before he steals his little brother's ice cream cone? That was some high-level Dundasso right there. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Whoa. Feel like you're getting revved up for the witch, for watching the witch with your scary voice. Wouldst thou like to live deliciously, Chad? I, see, I don't. That's I don't you don't even. get it yet, but you will. I'm so excited. Please, can you just do me this favor? When you are forced to watch the witch, because last time I checked in the voting, it is absolutely crushing yeah, Boston translation. Not even close. Will you please watch it at night with all the lights no, turned off? No, I will not do please that. Please do No, that. it's just number one doesn't fit my schedule. It's not when I watch the movies for the movie club. When number, do you watch the movies for the movie club? Usually in the middle of the day on uh, Tuesday. <laughs> so not at the absolute last minute. You could do it Tuesday well, we, night. I mean, we got to know when, I mean, during normal weeks, we got to wait till the voting's over. This week, it feels pretty safe. But there's a whole week be... between when the voting ends and when we talk about I got a busy life. Man. No, you don't. You it's do. not like I can bring my kids in there and watch The Witch with them. Scare them. Wait till your kids off. are asleep. I'll tell you what. Set an alarm for the middle of the night. <laughs> Wake up. Yeah. If, it's, if it makes you feel better for me to say yes, then I will do that. Okay. But not really. All right. I'm absolutely not. I'm very excited. That. First question this week comes to us from Eric Everly, who writes, this is short and to the point. Eric Everly knows how to get his email on the co-main event podcast. He writes, Horiguchi, period, stopped, period, 68 seconds, period, discuss. Wow, that is, that's succinct. That's succinct. It's about a topic that we were probably not going to spend an entire round of the podcast talking about today. So that is a shrewd, that's a shrewd email from Eric Everly. This got lost in the shuffle a little bit, at least initially, Ben, because, uh, you know, you had UFC 241 on Saturday night. Uh, we didn't maybe know that Kyoji Horiguchi was in action over there at Ryzen. I, I know I woke up the next morning and saw it on my uh, Twitter timeline, and I was flabbergasted to see that the Gooch had lost a fight to Kai Asakura at Ryzen 18 in a minute and seven seconds. Knocked out. He was. This was a non-title bout, Yes. Why? Well, I mean, you know how they do over there in the Japanese MMA promotions. Anything could happen. Could be a title fight. Could be a non-title fight. Could be a catchweight. Maybe two guys are going to show up and tag team you. Anything could happen. So he gets knocked out in 67 seconds, but he's still the champion. He's still the champion. He personally, Horiguchi personally, has called for a rematch and insists that the title be on the line, which is, that's big of him. It's big to be like, hey, man, I'll rematch this guy who just beat me. And you know what? This time I'll even put my title on the line. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess maybe the way to think about that is that Kai Asakura is the people's champion right now. And he doesn't actually have physical possession of the belt. We're, we're going to keep it at Horiguchi's house. Yeah. But we know that it's his, yeah. kind of. Kai can, he can come over and use it whenever he needs it. Right. And we would have done the rematch in this instance, even if it was a title fight. So... We can just think of it as being like the same thing. Like we're going to rematch. The belt's going to be, let's say, on the line. Let's not pay too much attention to who is physically bringing the belt to the arena. 
as long as it gets there and as long as the person who wins the fight is the person who goes home with it. I'm sure that's how they're going to think about it. Ben, this is a pretty big deal, though, because Horiguchi, previous to this, he had, I believe, a 13-fight win streak dating back to his loss to Demetrius Johnson at UFC 186 in April of 2015. He had just done the cross-promotion with Bellator, uh, in 2018 and 2019, where he beat Darian Caldwell twice. Yeah, for won, that belt. Yep, won the Bellator Bantamweight World Championship. So, so really, Kai Asakura managed to beat a guy with two belts and leave with zero belts. Yeah, see, that's the... Uh, okay, the, the way you put it right there kind of underscores what kind of deal this is for Kai Asakura. Although, here we are talking about him on the Co-Main Event Podcast, when I would wager Saturday night. We probably had never heard his name before. So he does have that going for him, and he, I guess he's going to probably get to rematch Horiguchi here. But at the same time, what is he the linear Bellator yeah. bantamweight champion That's how now? I'm choosing to think of him, yes. So we got to track his career for the rest of the time yep. until there's some other manner of crossover there. Well, unless Horiguchi beats him and, and takes all the That's true. imaginary takes, gold back. Takes the imaginary gold back with him. Right. Now, we had just started to regard Kyoji Horiguchi as like a capital G guy on the international scene. It kind of took that two-fight series with Darian Caldwell and all the other things that he was able to do, uh, especially since leaving the UFC in uh, the fall of 2016, to kind of put Horiguchi on the map. Uh, he's one of the uh, uh, American Top Team guys down there in Florida. Everybody from American Top Top Team speaks about Horiguchi in superlatives. Like, if that's the, the most competitive gym in the world, it's a pretty big compliment, the fact that if you ask... A lot of people at uh, uh, American Top Team, who's the best fighter here? They'll say Horaguchi, yeah, which is kind of uh, unexpected, maybe. So we had just he had just like carved out this spot as like a guy to know on the international scene, and now he gets knocked out in a minute and seven seconds by Kai Asakura. That's tough. That's a rough one. That is a rough. He one. caught a hot one, you might say. I mean, he walked right into a right hand, and then. That was pretty much the beginning of the end. That was the beginning of the end, but it only got worse from there. The guy got kneed. He got blasted again. He's stumbling around the ring trying to get his footing. And then finally, uh, his opponent steps in there and, and puts him away with another punch. But uh, unexpected and uh, not the way you wanted it to go if you were Horiguchi. No. No. Getting knocked out in 67 seconds is not the way you wanted it to go. How about an interesting wrinkle that he gets to keep all that gold for now? For now. We're just going to keep it at his house. We all know who the rightful owner is. That's right. But he can come over anytime he wants. Yeah, anytime he wants. Around, yeah. As long as Horiguchi is around. Yes. Just, you know, like uh, supervised visitation. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, I know that 155 is a weight class that's already overrun with great contenders, but I was impressed by Kama Worthy's UFC introduction. Fighting a friend that you trained with on four days' notice and winning with an incredible KO, already having a cool nickname like the Death Star without us having to tweak it, seeming like a nice down-to-earth guy who's not just saying shit to try to self get himself noticed. Check, check, and check. I see he mentioned fighting McGregor, but I'll try to overlook that for now. I'm not going to get too excited for this guy in the lightweight division, which is already an embarrassment of riches, but I'm looking forward to his next fight. Thoughts on his Octagon debut? Now, Ben, I know you just talked to Kama Worthy here I for did. a story that went up on The Athletic today. I did, yeah. We we talked uh, while he was on making his way home uh, in between flights after uh, his big win here. And I got to say, it was interesting to talk to somebody who had just been through a real whirlwind kind of week. Yeah. Because he got called on Monday for this fight. Like it was 
a fight where uh, it was originally John McDessie, I think, right? Like, it was supposed to fight Devontae Smith. Uh, McDessie pulls out end of July, uh, and then it was like Clay Collard was going to fight him, and I don't even know if they gave a reason for why Clay Collard was pulled out of the fight. But it was like, Kamawili had just fought at, like, the end of July, basically. Like, two weeks, a little over two weeks before this, before he got the call. And he won, but he won, like, in the third round. He said he was still a little banged up. And his manager called, and he had been thinking, you know what, I probably I'm going to get a contender series shot. Like, there's they got some lightweight spots there. That's what he was planning on. And he was thinking, like, hey, try to stay in shape, man, because you might only get, like, two weeks' notice, two or three weeks' notice. And instead, they're like, six days, take it or leave it. And at first, he said, he was like, no. I, like, he, he knows Devontae Smith, kind of considers him a friend, has trained with him before, and was just like... I'm like almost 20 pounds over right now. I'm still sore and beat up. No, I can't do it. And his manager basically talked him into it by saying like, you tell him no now and it could be a long time before you get another call like this again, if at all, especially at lightweight where there's just, there's so many damn good fighters yeah. out there. And so, yeah, he, he got talked into doing it. And then, you know, immediately you got to start trying to get medicals done, start arranging for travel. He was like trying to find somebody to watch his kids, stuff like that. And then goes out there and scores that knockout. And it's like, that is a whole lot of changes to your life inside of one week. Yeah. But I, I agree that he, he does so far seem like somebody you could get excited about it. Even though he's had a lot of like ups and downs just in his career to get to this point. I mean, he's had 20 pro fights, had a pretty good amateur career before that. He's like 32. And now is to a point where it's like, okay... You go out there, nobody's really heard of you before outside the regional scene and like Pittsburgh and stuff, and you get a win on one of the biggest fight cards of the year, and you're one of the biggest, like I think the biggest underdog of the night. Now suddenly everybody's kind of paying attention. That's a, you know, a pretty good way to make your introduction to the MMA world. Yeah, Clay Collard was removed due to an undisclosed uh, medical issue. You'll recall why Clay Collard may be notable to Coming Event Podcast listeners. Cassius Clay Collard? Because his nickname is Cassius. Like if your name was if your name was Mike Wilson and your nickname was Tyson, Mike Tyson Wilson <laughs> Wilson. See, that's how I would announce it yeah. if I were up there in the ring. So this went about as well as Kama Worthy could have anticipated. Didn't have to have a lengthy fight. Scored the TKO in four minutes and fifteen seconds. Uh, as you mentioned, Devonte Smith is a guy that he had previously had a friendship with, had a training relationship with. So maybe that's not the the greatest situation in the world, but a pretty big deal for a guy to come into the UFC on six days notice, not only score this win, but you got to think like, you know, extend his life in the, in the octagon here, his career in the octagon. So that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big week for that guy. Plus yeah. performance of the night bonus. Yeah. So did you ask him about that? Were you like, what are you going to do with the 50 G's? Yeah. Well, I mean, what he's going to do, it seems like right now is focus on trying to get the next fight and not, blow this all and uh, be a flash in the pan kind of thing. Yeah. But um, the the thing that I think was, like, the Death Star as a nickname, I was thinking about it afterwards, and I was like, okay, it's it's a little evil. Yeah. It's not exactly the good guys, the Death Star, but it is memorable. Yeah. You can cut a lot of promos about how you'll be fully operational <laughs> by the time your little friends arrive. How you're, like, almost invulnerable. Yeah. I mean, there's some drawbacks there. <laughs> there right? are. There are. A well-placed shot can blow up the entire Death Star. <laughs> That's true of any of us. Nah, I still think it's a pretty good nickname. Yeah. 
Next question this week comes to us from Jeff of Atlanta, who writes, Did you guys notice Frank Trigg checking gloves, mouthpieces, and cups in the prep corner for UFC 241? I don't really have a question beyond that. Just thought it was a cool post-fight career idea. Frank Trigg has been roughing for a while. Yeah. Several years now. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. is like Now it seems like everybody kind of notices him, but like... It wasn't just a thing where he was like, hey, it'd be cool to be on TV in regards with MMA. Somehow, maybe I'll become a wrestler. He's been about that life. Yeah. He's been doing it for a while. Yeah. They don't let you just waltz in and start refing fights in the UFC. Like, even if you're Frank Trigg, you got to at least uh, pay some dues a little bit there. You know, refing events on the independent circuit, on the regional circuit, kind of working his way up. At this point, uh, he's worked a few UFC events, though. I recall seeing Frank Trigg out there refing fights. You know what I like about... Frank Trigg being a referee, I agree with Jeff of Atlanta that it's a pretty cool uh, post-fight career idea, even though I don't think those guys get paid quite enough to uh, make that a full-time gig. Maybe if you're like Herb Dean. Yeah. Like, I don't know how Herb Dean could have a have a side gig. He's just traveling so much, I would think. Yeah. yeah, unless he hosts like a wildly popular travel podcast or something. Now, I would listen to Herb Dean's travel podcast. Absolutely. The thing that I think is cool about Frank Trigg is he looks like he's having so much fun out there. Like, we talk a lot about how guys retire, fighters retire, they go back to the gym, maybe they're they're uh, teaching classes, maybe they're coaching people. It keeps them close to the sport, and, it, and you know, it's it's always a little bit tempting to come back, I think, if you are doing that stuff. Like, we just saw, just saw today Dan Hardy. Saying he's going back in the USADA testing pool with uh, the hopes of a UFC comeback, which, even with the the wolf heart or whatever he's got. I I guess so. Yeah, he might must uh, maybe he has some faith that he's going to get those medical issues sorted out. But with a guy like Frank Trigg, like maybe refing and and working ringside stuff is a good uh, a good outlet for that. It allows you to kind of stay close to the sport, and at the same time, you are in a sort of a different role. You're not really in a uh, like a fighting corner type role. So maybe it's uh maybe it's fun for him. I don't know. He seems to be having a blast. If you're a fighter, do you feel good when you see Frank Trigger's work in your fight? You're like, okay, there's a guy who's been in there. He knows what it's about. Yeah, you must a little bit, right? Except like if he's too slow to step in there and stop it and you have to take a bunch of extra punches, is he just going to be like, hey, look, man, Robbie Lawler knocked me out. I fell to my knees in the corner and then he wound up and blasted me in the head one more time and I didn't complain. So shut up. And then you'd have to be like, okay, well, it's a good point. Robbie Lawler didn't get an extra free shot at my head. It would be pretty mean if he took the shut up. <laughs> the shut up would be implied. He wouldn't actually have to say shut up. Maybe it would be more like, hey, man, I empathize with what happened to you. But did Robbie Lawler nearly take off your head? No. Then I'm not going to say See, shut up, but shut up. The way you are casting this says more about Ben Folks than it does about anything <laughs> That's else. That's possible. That's possible. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler, who writes... A lot of big stuff happened this weekend. Biggest mystery of the card. What happened to Mike Beltran's mustache? Had to tuck it in. Yeah. See, we're on the uh, the referee beat here for a yeah, minute. It seems that it's way. Co-main event podcast. It was shocking to turn on the UFC 241 pay-per-view and see Mike Beltran, noted MMA ref, who looks like a damn Dungeons and Dragons character. Like he's out there. Like he left his battle axe cage side so he could jump in there and referee a fight. Turn on this uh, UFC 241 card out there in California. Beltran's mustache is all but gone. Just yeah. looking like a regular mustache out there. Well, and see, at first, when I thought that he had been forced to cut it or had maybe chosen to cut it, I was concerned because I was like, does this sap him of his superpowers without the mustache? Is he vulnerable to... Is he at the mercy of his enemies now that he does not have his powerful mustache to protect him? And then 
we heard from several sources on the ground yeah. in Anaheim. Don't worry, everybody. Mike Beltran was just forced to tuck in the mustache somehow. Which is, that's commission oversight. That's overreach that is, right there. That is government overreach. That's the heavy hand of the state government yeah. coming down on Mike Beltran. The, the government just getting all up in people's lives. And, you know, that is a choice between Mike Beltran and his barber, I think. That's how it should stay. That's what he's going to be thinking about this weekend when he jumps on his hog and he's out living the free life on the highway. Just, you know, getting a little, a few bugs in his teeth, getting some wind in his mustache. He's going to be thinking about the, the overreach of the state government. Now, see, that's where the mustache can run free. Shout out also to longtime co-main event podcast listener and Patreon supporter, Colleen, who really was the first to come in with the idea that he probably tied the ends of his mustache together and then threw them over his shoulders. To tuck in. She says that's a uh, a trick that the ladies use. Okay. On their long hair, I think. Not necessarily on All their right. mustaches. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. I was a little confused there for a second. Next question this week comes to us from Fooey Fooey Moy Moy. Oh, yes. Noted rugby player. That's right. Now, see, the most surprising thing him. here is that Fooey Fooey Moy Moy is a real name. Yeah. Shout out to uh, noted rugby player who taken some time in to write to the co-main event podcast. I really enjoy his uh, his Wikipedia photo. He, he, he seems to be, he's handling the rugby ball, whatever yeah, it is. I think that's called the ball. And the look on his face is one of just like shock and terror yeah. to be to have found himself he here. He sees someone coming for him. But he looks like a big scary dude. I would think yeah. shock and terror should be on whoever has to bring that guy down. Fooey Fooey Moy Moy writes, Which upcoming title reign do you think the MMA gods will take more glee enforcing upon us? <laughs> oh, no. Bellator heavyweight champion? Check Congo? No! Or, or UFC sorry, I, women's... I can't, just whatever I hear it mentioned, I can't help myself. Or UFC women's bantamweight champion Jermaine Durandamy. <laughs> we about to get Durandamy era 2.0. I mean, uh, what's really going on? Shit's about to get wacky, disgust, and stuff. Now, see, they just announced this also over the weekend. We had wondered what they were going to do. Uh, not only, well, in, frankly, in three different women's divisions right now in the UFC, women's featherweight, women's bantamweight, uh, women's flyweight. We were kind of wondering what they were going to do. We got at least one answer over the weekend. They announced that uh, Amanda Nunes is going to dis- defend the bantamweight crown. Now, not the featherweight crown, the bantamweight crown against, against Jermaine Durandamy. Former featherweight champion. Jermaine Disastrous Durandamy. featherweight champion, Jermaine Durandamy. This thing, if... Jermaine Durandamy wins and becomes women's bantamweight champion. Amanda Nunes will still have the women's featherweight title, right? I, that that couldn't possibly be for both of them. So then that one wouldn't be quite as bad. We'd still have Amanda Nunes as champion in one division. However, if Czech Congo were to come up in there where Ryan Bader is now the heavyweight champion and it looks like there are like some fun, weird fights you could put together and he becomes a Bellator heavyweight champion, like if all that tournament stuff just ends up with Czech Congo being heavyweight champion anyway, that'll be more of a bummer for me. Yeah, no, I agree. That's the real... Uh... I mean, I guess Ryan Bader will still have another belt too, but it's still, it's like, you're telling me we went through that entire heavyweight Grand Prix just so we could end up shortly thereafter with Czech Congo. You know how I feel when I think about the idea of Ryan Bader fighting Czech Congo? Sleepy? I feel the way Fooey Fooey Moy Moy looks in his Wikipedia picture where he's, things are okay now. He has the ball in his hands, but he's looking out of the frame. Something bad is coming. Yeah, he Something sees danger. Bad. Danger approaches. Danger ahead. All right, last question this week. from uh, This is international soccer star Jurgen Klopp, correct? Uh, German uh, football coach. Coach. I believe he's coach of Liverpool now. Okay. 
I mean, you'd think he would be busy. I, I mean, when you when something's important to you, like sending in a question to the Comet Event Podcast, you make the time. That's true. Yeah, especially on a topic like this. Yeah. I know you've received thousands of emails. Well, I mean, let's not get crazy, Jurgen. Uh <laughs> But this, about this shit, but what the fuck? That old guy took the touch of death as if it were nothing. Please discourse unidentified man's possible weight class and dates for his UFC debut slash rematch with Conor McGregor. We talked about this on the Power Hour on Friday, available to our Patreon supporters at the $5 and up per month level. But yes, TMZ video of a uh, Conor McGregor uh, incident in a pub over there in Dublin, I believe, from April, but we just got the video, so it's kind of making headlines now. An altercation between Conor McGregor and a guy at the bar, apparently over proper 12. It appeared that uh, Conor McGregor, as you can imagine him doing pretty much 24 hours a day, just pouring free shots of proper 12 for folks. Well, we assume they're free. Uh, in the Dublin pub, this old gentleman, uh, he's got a discerning tastes. He vehemently refuses. Now, I read about this incident further in some kind of like Irish uh, news source website. And I don't It seemed a little tabloidish, so I don't know exactly what to make of it. It seemed like we were going, we were getting a lot of information from somebody who purported to be one of the old man's friends, maybe even a friend of a friend. Okay. But in that version of the story, what had happened was the old guy was finishing up his pint and then was going to go home. And Conor McGregor's trying to offer him this whiskey and he's like, no, I'm just like, I'm just finishing this one and then I'm out of here. And like, he keeps moving, he keeps putting the, the glass in front of him and then the guy keeps moving it and then Conor McGregor gets upset because he doesn't want the glass. But it's like, he's he's on his last beer. He, he has plans for his evening maybe that don't include a shot of gross whiskey. He just wants to finish his pint and go home. Conor McGregor takes a swipe at him he finished his pint after that, was not too bothered by the punch at the time, we were led to believe, and that's what the video bears out. Then he finishes his pint, takes a taxi home, and then the next day was feeling pretty bad. Feeling like he got punched in the face by Conor McGregor. Okay, see, because when we talked about it on Friday on the Power Hour, my take was the same here as Jurgen Klopp's, saying uh, this guy took Conor McGregor's left hand and he didn't. He barely even budged. He just turned his head yes. as though he was. He had decided the thing he was going to do was carry on the conversation with the person on his right <laughs> instead of with Conor McGregor, which I thought was pretty impressive. Not surprised, maybe, to learn that the morning after, he's not feeling great. Yeah. But hey, he's not alone. Talk to Jose Aldo. Morning after, he probably wasn't feeling all that great either. I'm sure his experience and Jose Aldo's are very similar. That's right. Yeah. No, this old man, he's constantly talking about retirement, but now he's saying he might go down to bantamweight to uh, fight Henry Cejudo. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows indeed? Conor McGregor, uh, especially now, you would think, Ben, with the uh, with Nate Diaz having returned and gotten a win over the weekend with uh, Dustin Poirier versus Habib Nurmagomedov on tap at UFC 242, you would think that his options are starting to reveal themselves a little bit more, you would think he would be starting to get his shit together. And maybe he is now, as I mentioned, since this incident allegedly took place back in April. But at the same time, sure seems like he's still just wilding in the streets, like being aggressively online. I mean, it took place in April, a month after the incident where he got arrested for stomping on some dude's phone outside the Fontainebleau. So... That was the one where we were like, okay, he, he's probably going to get his shit together after this one, right? Like, he's going to realize, like, okay, 
Now, it's not just like fun, crazy antics. It's getting arrested, crazy antics, and having to pay somebody a bunch of money to make it go away. But no, a month later, he's out here punching old men in bars. And not, and like not knocking them down. That's, you really, you're really hung up on that. I just think if you got, you I, really if were, I got punched by Conor McGregor, I would go down like a sack of laundry. You, what you really wanted was to see that old man get laid out. I'm just That's surprised that he didn't get laid out. Just surprised that he, like, he basically acted like that wasn't even the first time that day he got punched by a professional MMA fighter. Maybe it wasn't. For all we know. For all we know. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comateevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Now, here's an important distinction. As we are frequently told by Comain Event podcast listeners, go to comainevent.com not comaineventpodcast.com. I understand comaineventpodcast.com is the uh, website of a high-end escort service. You don't say. So either so, you're running that under the table and I don't know about it, or someone has, has purchased our previous domain. I don't know how that would be useful to them, though. Because Well, they, maybe there's something we don't know about our listenership. Maybe they did some demographic information and found out, you know, who likes high-end escorts. People see, who visit this particular website. It's the high-end part that doesn't add up for me. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, make sure you go over to comainevent.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, for three full rounds in the main event of UFC 241 on Saturday night, it sure looked like we were steaming toward a Daniel Cormier retention, a second victory over Stipe Miocic, and we were all going to go on with the glory of the DC heavyweight title reign. But it was not to be, my friend, because Stipe Miocic comes out on the fourth. Maybe Daniel Cormier is getting a little tired. Maybe Stipe Miocic turns up the heat a little bit. Starts uh, really digging those left hooks to the body. Ultimately, he stuns Cormier with a punch to the head, follows it up with strikes. Cormier collapses against the cage with a look on his face that seemed like he was feeling how we all were feeling. And he succumbs to a TKO four minutes and nine seconds into the fourth round. Stipe Miocic, now your two-time UFC heavyweight champion. Let's start, I guess, with Daniel Cormier since uh, there's a lot of stuff in the ether about him right now that we probably need to discuss before we talk a little bit about what could be next for Stipe Miocic. I didn't, I couldn't, even when things were going well in this fight for Daniel Cormier, which was for 15 plus minutes, I was watching this fight and I was thinking, what is he doing? Why is his game plan here? Let Stipe Miocic punch me in the face basically as many times as he wants to in order for me to, hey, admittedly punch Stipe Miocic in the face more and seemingly better. Yeah, well, his explanation afterwards I thought made some sense because he was asked basically, 
why were you so cavalier about getting hit in the head here? And he was like, well, I didn't feel like I was really being affected by those punches early on. He was landing some punches, but I felt like none of them really hurt too bad. I could take them, and it was giving me the opportunity to punch him back. And this was one of the things that I think was interesting as the fight went on, because early on you saw Daniel Cormier mixing it up a little bit. Got a takedown on Stipe. Mm -hmm. He controlled him on the ground a little bit. But he also, as he started to have success landing, it seemed like he had the faster hands. Yep. When he could get into like a boxing range and just turn it into a boxing fight, he seemed like he was doing pretty well there. He was definitely winning. And in a way, it was convincing Stipe to forego some of his other weapons because he was thinking, you know, Daniel Cormier is walking towards you with his hands down. And it looks like you can hit him. It looks like, okay, here he comes. He's not doing a whole lot defensively. I can touch this guy. And then that gets, that gives Daniel Cormier the opportunity he wants to get in there close and hit you back and hit you more. And he was also saying, you could look at Stipe's face and you could see the damage. Yeah. Like you could see the, the swelling under his left eye, especially really early on. And Daniel Cormier wasn't really showing that too much. He was looking like he was taking it fine. And so maybe he just got a, he took for granted. I can take this guy's punches and he's not going to be able to take mine and I'm just going to add them up on him. And yet, and there were a few early on, like in the first, second, even third round, there were a few punches that Cormier lands where you're going, oh, kind of surprising that Stipe's still there. And yet, I think that was the thing, is that you caught him early on in the first fight, and then this time, he was taking those punches. And he wasn't ever really looking too hurt. Like, I mean, he was wearing some physical damage, but he never seemed like he was really exactly reeling from the power of Daniel Cormier. And then maybe Cormier in the fourth round there is thinking, we're going to be here for the long haul, clearly. I'm not getting rid of this guy. I'm not even coming close. So maybe he takes his foot off the gas a little bit to conserve energy, thinking about the fifth round coming up. And then that's when Stipe, re- like when he landed one or two of those left hooks to the body, and it was just like, aha! Yeah. I, like, I have found a critical opening. Yeah, it was like he found, like he'd been playing a video game and he just found the key. Yeah. Well, he said afterwards in the piece that uh, Josh Gross did for The Athletic where he ends up following around Stipe and his crew till 3 a.m. in the, the hotel where everybody's, I love the part where everybody's got their champagne out and the hotel security guard keeps asking people to really, we can't really be doing this with champagne out in the lobby and people are going like, yeah, but we're going to do it anyway. And... At one point, like talking about the body shots and Stipe was saying, I, you know, I went back and I watched his fight with Anderson Silva at UFC 200. Or that one where he's supposed to fight John Jones. We get Anderson Silva in there at the last minute. And the one part where it seemed like Anderson Silva really hurt Daniel Cormier was with a kick to the body. I'm thinking, maybe this guy's body is more of a vulnerability that, than people realize. And then he starts attacking the body and finding an opening there. And then he just kept going right back to it. And you could see that's really taking something out of Cormier. Yeah. As much as everything that you said and Daniel Cormier said makes sense about why you might try to fight Stipe Miocic that way, I kind of keep coming back to the idea that if I'm Daniel Cormier, what is the only way Stipe Miocic can beat me? Probably if he hits me with something hard and you know knocks me out or finishes me via TKO. In all other ways, I should probably have the advantage. I should probably be quicker than him. I'm almost certainly going to have better wrestling than he does. Just When I watch a fight like this, especially a fight that comes at such a pivotal moment in Daniel Cormier's career and, uh, you know, a fight that he basically, if he wins it, he has a lot of options. And now I think we will talk about this in a minute, but if he loses it, 
those options seem to diminish extremely quickly. It reminded me in spirit a lot of how I felt about Fedor Emelianenko's fight against Dan Henderson, where I was like, what's the only way Dan Henderson can beat Fedor Emelianenko? To punch him with the H-bomb. And yet Fedor Emelianenko storms out of his corner and gets into a goddamn firefight with Daniel or with uh, Dan Henderson. It reminded me a little bit about that because I was like, you keep playing to Stipe Miocic's strengths over the course of three plus rounds. I'm not really all that shocked if he beats you. Now, I guess that said, had Cormier been able to keep going with that strategy for another six minutes, we'd be sitting here talking about how he took Stipe Miocic's best shots and still won the damn fight. He's up in the scorecards. So, yeah, I mean... You mentioned, though, the options, because this is what I think is really interesting for Cormier now and, like, a little bit scary. I wrote about my column Sunday after the fight was you could hear it when he is talking about it in the press conference. You know, Brett Okamoto talked to him in the locker room afterwards. Uh, He – everybody wants to know, like, is this going to be it? Because he talked about it before. Like, hey, if I win, it would you know, i got to be careful not to just kind of – keep going the next guy, the next guy until I stick around too long. And if I lose, I could probably get the rematch, but maybe I should take it as a sign that I, I should step away, that I don't have it anymore. And he was talking about it and not making any clear indicators here about what he was going to do next. But he did say again, where he was like, if I ask for the rematch, I think I could probably get it. But he didn't sound, he sounded like an alcoholic being like, well, if I go to the high school reunion with the open bar, I know it's probably going to happen. And like, there's a little bit of dread in his voice there. Not necessarily because I think that he's scared of getting punched in the head by Stipe again, but just because he's a little bit scared, I think, of what he is, he might choose to do. Yeah. If, if given a couple weeks to think about it, because he's just like, he knows he's a competitive guy. Like, just even among super competitive people, he's a competitive person. And I'm sure it's going to bug him, when he, especially when he looks back and thinks, man, I was winning that fight. Yeah. And I gave him opportunities to come back and win that fight. And if I just fought a little smarter, I would have beat Stipe. And right now we're not at that 1-1. I could come back, man. I could come back. I could do it smarter and better. I could beat him. I know I could. And then I win this series. People are calling him the greatest heavyweight of all time. I win the series. Then I must be the greatest heavyweight of all time. And I ride off into the sunset. And there it is. I mean, that's got to be hard to resist. Yeah, especially for a competitor like Daniel Cormier, I would think the hardest part maybe about walking away at this juncture will be thinking that you probably still believe in your heart that you are better than Stipe Miocic. And if you had just fought a slightly different fight or had done, uh, you know, things, even done things differently on one or two occasions, you probably would have won this fight. And I think that's going to probably haunt him. And whether or not that, pushes him in one direction or another in terms of what he's going to do next. I have no idea. But just as a, a guy who has competed all his life and has been candid in the in the past about having fallen into depressions when he didn't have that competition in his life, I think it's going to be uh, hard for him to, to walk away, especially knowing like he probably should have won that fight and maybe believing that he could win a third fight. At the same time, though, Daniel Cormier is one of these guys that has a lot of options in his life. He has got kids. Uh, he's a broadcaster for the UFC. He's a high school wrestling coach. There are other things Daniel Cormier can do to occupy his time. So while I hate to sound overly pragmatic about it, I do wonder if 
the biggest deciding factor in what Cormier chooses to do next will be what kind of opportunity he can get and what he can get paid for it. Uh, so I think it, it will largely depend on what the UFC is, is willing to get him and uh, how much it is willing to pay him to do it. And then I think you have all of the concerns about family and age and, and everything else. But I agree with you that it's that age-old double-edged sword or catch-22 about when to walk away in fighting. Do you walk away after you had a big win? When you feel like you could still do good things in the octagon, or do you walk away after a loss that probably leaves you with a terrible taste in your mouth? Well, I think the UFC side of it is also going to depend on what do you think you can do with Stipe now. Because yeah. here he is. He's the champion. And we talked about this before. We're kind of back to square one. Yeah, it's Stipe like we, was a champion. It's like we just pushed the reset button on a really fun time in the UFC heavyweight division. Like it was a dream. Like we got out of the shower on the third season of Dallas, and it turned out the entire second season was a dream. <laughs> well, I mean, I think Stipe does come out of this where, all right, you saw him get knocked out, but then he comes back and he fights through a little bit of adversity here in the second fight, and he wins it, and it's a great moment for him. But then now what do you do? Because he yeah. was champion for long enough that anybody who's kind of in that conversation at all as a potential title contender, he's already beat him. Uh, Francis Ngannou is the most reasonable guy, the guy who's made the best, most recent claim for number one contender spot. But we saw that fight not too recently or not too long ago. And it does feel like it would just be the same fight over again. I mean, you know, big guy like Francis Ngannou who hits the way he does. Who knows? He could always catch you with a hot one and knock your head clean off your shoulders. But it also seems like he probably has not closed the wrestling deficiency in his game enough to make it a completely different scenario against Stipe. And the Daniel Cormier thing, if he is not enthusiastic about jumping in there for a rubber match, and if you can't convince John Jones to go up to heavyweight, which doesn't seem like anything John Jones is exactly dying to do, uh, maybe if you pay John Jones a whole lot more, then he'll do it. It doesn't seem like there were a ton of like really fantastic options for yeah. Stipe if Cormier doesn't want to do a third fight. Yeah, I mean, we would all watch that Ngannou fight, obviously. Sure, because sure we would. A guy like Stipe Miocic and a guy like Francis Ngannou basically will probably watch that at any point. But I, I mean, agree you and I will watch him fight Curtis fucking Blades, man. Come true, on. True, Uh But it doesn't set our hair on fire the way maybe the idea of Daniel Cormier versus Francis Ngannou might or Daniel Cormier against John Jones for the heavyweight title might have. Or frankly, like even when we were slumming a little bit talking about Daniel Cormier against Brock Lesnar. I think we were all sort of like, all right, we will still watch maybe an interesting matchup. Miocic, as much as we like him and as great as he is, I don't think brings any of that sizzle back to the heavyweight division that we had for the last couple of years. Uh, but, but at the same time, you do, I guess you do have to talk realistic next steps. And if you're not going to do, I, I agree that option one should be the Cormier trilogy. It seems like it makes the most sense. It probably wouldn't have quite the interest that we have seen up to this point with Steve Miocic versus Daniel Cormier, but at the same time, it's going to be a good fight, and I think it would it would pull an, enough money for the UFC. I Yeah, it's hard to believe that Miocic would take the necessary promotional steps or have the interest to fight to bring John Jones up to heavyweight. Like, if they could, they should do that immediately. That's that's probably one of the biggest fights you can make. Well, or, there's not like a whole lot going on for John Jones. I right. mean, what, like Corey Anderson, like uh, the winner of Corey Anderson versus Johnny Walker. Yeah, I and if I mean maybe one of the points in favor of that fight or in favor of the feasibility of that fight is if you're John Jones and you watched this fight, 
you probably think you could beat Stipe Miocic just because of the success Daniel Cormier was having over three rounds. I mean, I'm sure if you're John Jones, you look at this and you're like, eh, I'm not all that impressed. Yeah. I still, I wonder how much of John Jones's reluctance to go up to heavyweight is a long-term negotiating strategy and how much of it is maybe a genuine thing of him going, you know what? I had to really kind of play it carefully with former middleweight Tiago Santos. Yeah, uh, maybe I do not want to test my chin out there against big ass Stipe Miocic throwing them ham hocks at me. Yeah, I think that like all of that is probably is probably true. Uh, and then I guess as a distant third in my preferences would be Miocic versus Ngannou, which is still still would be pretty good. Doesn't it seem like in this scenario when we're laying out those priorities, Francis Ngannou. He's kind of getting screwed because he, he yeah. earned it, man. I mean, he did anything you can ask him to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you can say the guy is getting screwed just because our lack of hype for that fight is because he already got beat by Miocic once. Like, he probably deserves the rematch, but at the same time, like, that first fight was so lopsided that at least some of our excitement for the rematch is tempered. So... But I agree with you. Like Francis Ngannou's got to fight for that title, no matter who has it at some point soon. I'm just wondering if we squeeze in a different option here for Miocic prior to that. And then a lot of then a lot, like all of those balls are still up in the air. There's no way to predict exactly how this is going to go at this point. Yeah. In any case, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. Uh, I'm going to do my. Are you fucking kidding me first? Because it is just slightly. Uh. UFC 241 related. I guess it's related to what we just talked about in the first round. And that is, did you see what happened with Daniel Cormier's weight? Yes. Here? So Cormier comes into the weigh-in and weighed uh, 236.5, which was down about 10 pounds from where he weighed in for the Miocic fight the first time. Miocic weighed in 233 pounds, which was also down for him from their first fight. But California is one of the few states that publicly releases fight night weigh-ins, so you know exactly how much everybody actually weighed. Which they should all do. During the fights, which they should all do. And California is a little bit more progressive. It monitors this stuff a little bit more. It wants to make sure uh, that nobody is like has gained 15% of their body weight back. When that happens, the California State Athletic Commission, quote-unquote, recommends that fighters move up to a different weight class. Daniel Cormier gained 10 and a half pounds between the weigh-in and fight night. Steve Miocic lost three pounds from the weigh-in to fight night. I've seen on the internet our guy Casey Lydon, noted videographer to the stars here in, in MMA, says that the difference was because Cormier, quote, ate a full meal and then weighed in in his street clothes on fight night. And I'm still saying, are you fucking kidding me? 11 pounds. Daniel Cormier gained 11 pounds from the weigh-in to fight night. Probably a chicken parmesan. That's a heavy. That's a heavy meal. A chicken parmesan. Uh, like six of them. Chicken parmesan with the house. I had the bread. Had bread before, like when you know they bring out the bread first, and you took a long time. He told himself not to fill up on bread, but you know, I mean, you get, you get started. Hey, you don't have to tell me. I know all about filling up on bread. I'm still saying eleven pounds. Are you fucking kidding me? That's a little. That's a little excessive. Also, was wearing his Uggs when he stepped on the scale. That'll probably add a couple pounds. Yeah. He probably was wearing his his boots. His Timberlands. Yeah. Still, 11 pounds, 10 and a half pounds. Makes me wonder what was going on there, man. What's really going on with Daniel Cormier's weight? Well, I look forward to the conspiracy theory that you kick off. Just, you're just asking the questions. 
I'm just, I'm yeah, I'm just asking interesting questions. Yeah. Fucking kidding me. Maybe in between the weigh-in and fight night, a small alien took up residence inside his brain and was like, you don't need to wrestle this guy. You don't even need to keep your hands up. Just bang, bro. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? I know you noticed your dude Colby Covington in the crowd for this one. How could you not? You noticed him because first you heard the crowd booing in the middle of a fight for no real reason. And then you realize, oh, Colby Covington is here with his MAGA hat and his sports coat and his old UFC belt that doesn't really hearken to anything anymore. And then you get the chance of, like, Colby sucks and fuck you, Colby, and all kinds of other stuff. And according to Dana White, he had to keep going over there and telling people to stop fucking with Colby Covington. This is a quote here from MMA Junkie. Everybody in that section kept fighting with Colby, White said at the post-fight press conference. So security kept coming over to me like 50 times to get him out of there. And I said, no, everybody needs to start acting like fucking professionals because I don't have another seat in this entire building. Uh, my are you fucking kidding me goes like, why do we feel like he needed to be here? Like on, on camera back there in a prominent position. If everybody else hates having him around. The fans are, are booing him. I mean, I understand we had ourselves a welterweight fight, but none of those guys are even thinking about Colby Covington. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking where, kidding why are we inviting this guy places? He's he's clearly he's he's just a problem. He's no fun to have around. He just riles everybody up. They're just gonna try to beat him up in the buffet line. Maybe tell Colby Covington. How how this? Let's give him a free voucher to get the fight via ESPN Plus. Then he can stay home. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, it's like Nate Diaz never left. Three years away, comes back to the octagon... Honestly, fights may be smarter than I've ever seen him fight as far as playing to his strengths, uh, taking away his opponent's strengths, goes out there, wins a decision over Anthony Pettis in a fight where it looked like he almost had Pettis stopped, and then what does master of self-marketing Nate Diaz do? He picks a fight with uh, the East Coast Miami gangster, Jorge Masvidal, because yeah. he is a gangster, but he ain't no West Coast gangster. And automatically, the entire MMA world is going, oh, shit, I would watch the hell out of that fight. Yeah. I mean, pretty much just a pitch-perfect night for Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz, problem solver, needle mover. Seems like he's going to come back and solve all our damn problems. Yes. And not only his own problems, not only what to do at welterweight, but like... Uh, what are we going to do with Jorge Masvidal, which is something we had been talking a lot about the last few weeks, since clearly Masvidal is probably not going to get that McGregor fight that he asked for. He's probably not next up for a title shot. He has been uh, fairly defiant about the idea of fighting Leon Edwards, who we would consider to be a step back at this point. We've all been kind of wringing our hands over what to do with game bread. Now, all of a sudden, Nate Diaz is just going to come along and, and show us the way. Show us the easy solution that, frankly, we thought we should have thought of before. You know what? And everything about Nate Diaz's outing here 
kind of, for one, puts the lie to the idea that, hey, Nate Diaz was never a needle mover and he was nobody and we didn't need him in the first place. But also really just shows you like what what, what the right guy with the right attitude can do for himself in just one evening of work in MMA. Because he comes out here, we were worried about how he might fare against Anthony Pettis, honestly. Yeah. Just it seemed like Anthony Pettis, if he could use his kicks and really keep Nate Diaz at that distance, that he might beat him up and Nate Diaz with three years off might look a little rusty. None of that happened. Nope. He came out there. He got a takedown. He got a single leg takedown and then really went to work with his ground game. And it's like, the Diaz brothers don't go for takedowns, even when they should. That was one of the things that we felt like we knew about him. Afterwards, I love Nate Diaz going on the post-fight show and talking about how he has wrestling by accident. That he, he has a bunch of D1 wrestlers in his gym and he didn't think that was a big deal at first because he didn't know what D1 meant. Uh, and also while he's saying this, you can see Chelsea on his face and he is just bemused at the whole conversation. And, it, but like him talking about, you know, some of the things he's been doing and training and everything to, to work on playing to his strengths a little more. And he really did it here against Anthony Pettis because it was both some new stuff where it was like his willingness to, be proactive about getting the fight to the mat, using his ground game. And then also that's still that pressure style that really takes it out of people. And you could see by the end of the second round, man, Anthony Pettis looked like he would rather be somewhere else. Yeah. He was feeling that pressure. And then afterwards, you know, not only he, he picks a fight with, with Jorge Masvidal, he's going out there and he's still doing all the Diaz stuff. Like they were asking him about, you know, how he felt after, you know, his time away coming back. And he said, uh, I've been working on a lot of stuff in my time away, like being an entrepreneur and putting my money to work and doing some of that stuff. But nothing beats this feeling of coming out here and getting the job done. And people ask, do you enjoy it? And I said, hell no, of course I don't enjoy it. And that's classic DS stuff. He's like, it's a great feeling afterwards. Nothing else feels like that, like the joy of coming out there and knowing that you did it. But when you're doing it, you're going, what the hell am I doing this for? This is crazy. That's exactly the kind of Diazism stuff that people never get enough of. And Nate is like the perfect mix of the, the Nick Diaz going to keep it perhaps too real with you at times, but then also going to make it so that it's relatable, but also going to like show up and do the stuff he has to do. And you can count on him. Yeah. We talked last week, not only on the podcast itself, but also on the power hour about a couple of things regarding Nate Diaz. First of all, that in the wake of UFC 241, even the UFC had to come out and admit, okay, this guy's a star. It's hard to hard to ignore that, especially considering the reports from inside the Honda Center in Anaheim, which basically said everybody in there was wearing some kind of Nate Diaz apparel. And that they all seemed to spark up all at once when Nate Diaz made his walkout. Which, hey man, that's a, it's a, uh, a good scene if you can craft it, I guess. Uh, we talked a little bit about how he had gone from being just Nick's little brother to suddenly being the predominant Diaz, like the Diaz of choice in the MMA uh, sphere. And part of that, of course, is by necessity because Nick isn't really fighting too much anymore. Uh, and part of it, I think, is just like a credit to Nate Diaz coming coming up in the world and becoming this figure and taking on these really high profile fights and beating Conor McGregor in their first fight, making himself into this figure in the landscape that he has become. Uh, the other, and that's by the way, now just even further over the top in the wake of UFC 241. The other thing that we had talked about was the Diaz brothers have this uncanny ability to sucker everyone they fight into a Diaz brothers style of fight. It's almost like there's no other option. It's almost like you can't avoid 
fighting the Diaz brothers in a style of fight that uh, that uh, caters to them. And that kind of happened to Anthony Pettis here because he started out pretty hot. He started out looking like it was going to be his night. Uh, I think midway through the first, he suffered a foot injury and that foot was nasty. Well, uh, suffered a foot injury kind of from Nate Diaz checking a kick, which is another thing that Diaz's haven't always even bothered to care about. So we saw the post-fight pictures there of Anthony Pettis' foot looking all, uh, he got his whole shit broke from ankle down. Uh, so that did not go well for him. And then it seemed like he just started to tire out because he couldn't keep up with Nate Diaz's pace. And ultimately he wilts and Nate Diaz gets the unanimous decision victory here. So you're right. It could not possibly have gone better for the Nick Diaz army <laughs> on this night. Nick Diaz army motherfuckers. I, I mean, where you go to enlist, Chad? <laughs> I know a lot of people are going to be signing up. A lot of people are going to be asking where they can go uh, talk to the recruiter. I think that uh, what happened, what you have to do is, while the Joe Rogan podcast is playing, you just shout at your screen, Nick Diaz Army, motherfucker, and then you're a private. And that's it. You've yeah, made, a, you've made right. a commitment. Yeah. Here's my question. Is Nate Diaz one fight away from a title shot at 170 pounds after having completely ghosted us for like three years, comes back, beats Anthony Pettis, who is technically, I believe, a top 10 welterweight at this point calls out Jorge Masvidal who is at this point a top contender in the welterweight division let's say they make that fight and Nate Diaz wins which is not completely out of the question I believe uh the same people that send out the early odds for every fight even way before even even when it's just like an idea yes these people will send the odds out to all the MMA media sent those odds out today and uh Jorge Masvidal is a slight favorite in that's the idea of this fight, but Nate Diaz could clearly win it. If Nate Diaz fights Jorge Masvidal and wins, is he the number one contender at 170 pounds? Yes. It's amazing. It's amazing that it's that short of a, of a direct line between a Diaz brother, just like just being gone for three years. And then suddenly like getting a title shot. You act like you never, you don't know how this sport works. It's still amazing. Even when you know, it's still amazing. I, I would say if you're going to do Colby Covington versus Kamara Usman, the winner of Jorge Masvidal and Nate Diaz fights for the title next. Either one, either, whoever it is, they, yeah. they bring some fun to the picture. Yeah, they do. Meanwhile, uh, Nate Diaz, by the way, also correctly handled the Colby Covington question where he said, I don't know who that is. What weight is he at? <laughs> Just pitch perfect, Jad. You can't do it any better than this guy's doing it right now. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, Anthony Pettis? He had a brief but wondrous run, I guess, at welterweight. Uh, he obviously had lost to Tony Ferguson in his last lightweight appearance at UFC 229 and then had moved up uh, for a return to welterweight against Stephen Thompson in March and had won that fight by surprising KO in the second round. So he, he gets this Diaz fight, looks good initially, but ultimately kind of fades down the stretch. It seems like we are, well, not only has Anthony Pettis continued his win one, lose one pattern that he has been on since 2016, but at the same time, I feel like Anthony Pettis is back to being in just kind of like a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And I don't know exactly what you do with him now, but um, it sound, the way you phrased his welterweight ranking sounded like you weren't totally buying it to begin with. Well, I mean, the guy just got one win. Right? I know. And it, and that one was you know kind of one good moment that he had in a fight, yeah. 
Do you think we get a uh, Anthony Pettis going back down to lightweight situation? <laughs> I mean, if knowing what we know about the trajectory of the average MMA career, yes, right? Because then, see, because at this point we'll be going back to basics, yeah, right? It'll be getting back to the old Pettis. That's right. Even That's though I think we've already one. done that a couple times, yeah. Still, we'll be getting back to the old Pettis, taking it back to basics, all the old training partners. Yep. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, while the co-main event and main event of UFC 241 were both terrific, I think we got to give a special shout out to Paulo Costa and Yoel Romero, which was far and away the funnest fight on the UFC 241 card. These guys showed up to unify the getting off the bus championship, looking like we were going to have a pose down out there at Muscle Beach, and then just had a 15 minute, I'm going to say war, I'm going to say a little bit of performance art, I'm going to say Madness, just a wild encounter between Paulo Costa and Yoel Romero that Costa ultimately wins via unanimous decision, although a lot of people out there, especially in the MMA media, had this one scored for Romero. Looked up MMADecisions.com after this thing was over, and it was an even split, 11 cards to 11 cards about who should win this one. I'm just going to start here, man. What was, what's your favorite moment? Of Costa versus Romero at UFC 241. Well, my favorite moment might be how much you enjoyed this fight I as mean, you were sitting on the couch next to it's me. It's like my favorite thing. One of my favorite things that I've ever seen. I think we were maybe four minutes into the first round and you said, this is the greatest fight I've ever seen. Well, yeah, that's when Yoel Romero got knocked down, jumped up, and then pointed one way to try to get Paulo Costa to look yes. and tried to hit him with the other hand. Yeah. I was like, you got me. You had me at that, Yoel. Would you agree that this was a fight where everybody got to do their stuff? Oh, absolutely everybody got to do their stuff. Because Ewell Romero, I would say all the the bells and the whistles, but also the flaws and the problems were on display here for your boy Ewell Romero. I mean, he's going to get hit and then stick his tongue out at you a bunch of times. He's also going to do some crazy wild shit. He's going to give away some rounds and then look like he might just come back and steal it late. Yeah. All the the UL Romero stuff, better and for worse, all of it was right here. And it was a tough style matchup for him, I think, and also a tough matchup in the sense that here he is, like 42 years old, up here against 28-year-old Paulo Costa, who is looking like he is just in peak physical form. So he trained his ass off for this one, especially. And there were a lot of times where you thought like, "Uh uh-oh, UL Romero is... In trouble and maybe putting himself in more trouble. Like, not doing himself a whole lot of favors. And for him to even still be in it that late, I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, like, he was doing a little bit of rope-a-dope there. Not necessarily dodging all of the Paulo Costa shots, accepting a lot of the power shots. But at the same time, still taking time to poke his, his head up and stick his bloody tongue out at Paulo Costa. He was kind of doing his thing where he... uh lackadaisically floats around the cage until he suddenly explode explodes with some manner of like jaw dropping violence. Uh, one of the things I feel like this fight reinforced to me is that we were, we are kind of beyond the days at this point where a takedown in the last like 15 seconds of a round can steal it for you. Cause like that, that yeah. used to be like 
uh, a game planning uh, mainstay that you would try to catch a takedown right at the end of the round to try to sway the judges. And at this point, it kind of seems like everybody's uh, MMA IQ is up enough where that if you're going to try to steal a round with a takedown, it has to come with like at least a minute left. Because Romero got, he finished the second and the third, I believe, in this fight with a takedown. He got a, a nice double leg and then a, uh, a nice inside trip on Paulo Costa. And neither of them seemed to do the trick on the judges' cards. Uh, he landed more strikes in this fight. I guess it just seemed like uh, Paulo Costa was the aggressor most of the time here, and uh, he was he was maybe landing the the uh, the more significant blows to uh, Yoel Romero. But like it was very even, is a very close fight, a very uh, difficult fight to score, and a fight that was just a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody could have been too mad either way that one went, right? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it certainly couldn't have been a robbery. Right. And like the since the judges were so uniform, it it was also uh you know like we were going to accept this one even if we thought Yoel Romero should have got the nod. So now though Paulo Costa is an interesting entrant into the middleweight title. Picture. He sure as hell is. This man is enormous. Like when you are the physical superior to Yoel Romero just in terms of like sheer size and length out there at 185 pounds, that's uh, notable, right? And thirteen and zero. Yep. He's beaten. You know, he started out. He beat guys like Gareth McKellen, beat uh, Olawali Bang Boche, the Bang Bus, mm-hmm. uh, beat Johnny Hendricks, beat Uriah Hall. But now he's beaten UL Romero in a really just excellent fight all around. And you got Bobby Knuckles and Izzy Adesanya set to do it in Australia. And God, I really hope that one stays together because I'm going all the way over there no, for you're it. You're just gonna go to the beach if they can't have it. Listen. It's the place you're going close to the beach? We don't want to see what's going to happen to me if they don't have this fight by the That's time I true. get all the way over there. We might never get you back. I will I will go into a personal and professional tailspin from which I may never recover. So we're going to just act as if that fight cannot possibly fall apart. But whoever wins out of that one, you throw them in there with Paulo Costa and you're doing some business, baby. Yeah, you are. I'm into that. Yeah. Paulo Costa, first of all, when he comes out and everyone's booing him... And he smiles as if to say, you know, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Basically, like, I know why you're booing yeah, me. Yeah, don't hate me because I look like the the pool boy in a, in a porn movie. Yeah. I'm going to beat Yoel Romero real quick and then go kick sand in a nerd's face on the beach. <laughs> That's how Paulo Costa looks. But, like, this guy's a, a problem. Like, he, yeah. I, if, you, if there is any takeaway from UFC 241 about Paulo Costa is that this dude is a problem and is probably going to be a problem for any of the elite fighters at 185 pounds. Does that mean that I think he's definitely going to be the champion and, and win? No, but it means I think that he has established himself as the, the, uh, the obvious guy to have fight the winner of Adesanya and Whitaker and as, as has established himself to the point where like that is a really compelling fight. Because yeah. I think that he is going to pose a lot of physical problems for the, whoever wins that fight. Yeah. And if you're the UFC, you got to be feeling pretty good about how just, I mean, here's where you're thinking nobody better get hurt or get diverticulitis or get arrested or anything. But otherwise, you're pretty well set up in that division for the foreseeable future. Yeah. That's the other thing about Paulo Casso is like 28 years old. He's one of these, uh, young athletes who like makes up the majority seemingly of the UFC's roster at this point. And it's just like, seems like they are of the next generation of fighters. And there's just so many of them that, like I say all the time on the show, it's an embarrassment of riches 
on the UFC's roster right now. And so I'm really excited to see what happens with Paulo Costa after this. Meanwhile, what do you say we get your dude, Yoel Romero, into a fight with singing and dancing Jack Hermanson? Oh, I had not thought of that, but I think that's an excellent idea. Obviously, Yoel Romero, like... When you say he's one and three in his last four fights, that doesn't necessarily do it justice because clearly this Paulo Costa fight uh, was amazing and it could have gone either way. And then the other two losses in there dating back to July of 2017 are both to Robert Whitaker. Bobby fucking Knuckles. Bobby Knuckles, the current champion. And the most recent one at UFC 225 was a split decision and one where I believe Yoel Romero got his damn orbital socket broke. So there's some uh, some ins and outs in this current uh Win-loss record for Yoel Romero. Of course, the win is that uh, terrifying knockout of Luke Rockhold at right. UFC 221. The man is 42 years old, although uh, has the body of a much younger person and still can do really good things out there in the cage. This is one of those fights where, like, even if you lost, I feel like you came away ahead in a lot of ways because we were reminded how fun it can be to watch Yoel Romero fight. And just like Paulo Casa, he's a guy that, like... If you tell me where where and against who his next fight is, I'm going to I'm going to watch it. I will yeah, be there. I'll be there with my short sleeve collared linen shirt unbuttoned to the navel doing my with the my newsboy hat. Yeah. Newsboy hat on. Chomping on a cigar that I'll never light. Yeah. I'm into it. All right, let's do uh just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, you know how after a big heavyweight title fight like this, a lot of people like to get on the old Twitters Oh, man. Twitter some thoughts away. Is this a, uh, we're going to be talking about chief tweeter Scotty Cokes right now? Your boy, Scotty Cokes. People are out there, you know, some people in making comments about the fight, it seems, perhaps pursuing a personal agenda of their own. For instance, <laughs> you think John Jones, uh, just talking about how Stipe Miocic is the greatest heavyweight of all time, and you can't help but feel like, might be just trying to take a little something away from your rival and twist the knife on on Daniel Cormier there a little bit. But Scotty Cokes, he just gets on there on Twitter, posts a picture of himself alongside Ryan Bader, who in the photo has three belts. And then there are two Bellator ring girls, one of whom is holding some kind of bottle of champagne. And the tweet just says, at Ryan Bader is the best heavyweight fighter on the planet. I'm just saying, I see you, Scott Coker. Yeah. I see you. Well, and speaking of the question we had earlier from Fooey Fooey Moy Moy, Scotty Cokes is really sticking his neck out in front of the MMA gods at this point. You can't send <laughs> this tweet about Ryan Bader being the best heavyweight fighter on the planet when you got this Czech Congo fight on deck. You know what's going to happen. You send this tweet? You sent this tweet? I still love it, but you're, man, you're tempting fate here. I, I heard, though, that afterward uh, he sacrificed the life of one of those ring girls to just to the MMA gods to be like, we cool now? I'll I'll I will kill a human being just to make sure that Czech Congo does not become our heavyweight champion. Probably not good enough, man. <laughs> Shouldn't have booked the fight in the first place. Well Ben, I'm just saying this week, I hope nobody has uh set defined schedules over the next couple of weekends for the UFC because have you seen what's happening here? I, I don't know. This Saturday we are off to China where the main card begins at 6 a.m. Eastern on ESPN+, Plus, also known as 4 in the morning in the one true time zone. Oh, hold up. The prelims, weirdly, are on ESPN, beginning at 3 a.m. Eastern or 1 a.m. in the one true time zone, so you'll probably still be up. 
This is next weekend, right? August thirty first. Yeah, it's China. Okay, it's when we go to China, right? We are not going to China. The we as a culture, as as a sports, as a sporting subculture, we are all going to China. Shenzhen, the Shenzhen Universal Sports Center Arena. Yeah, that's correct. Granddaddy of them all. We will all be there in spirit. I will not be there in, in, in viewership or spirit or any way. Yeah, this is August 31st, UFC on ESPN plus 15. The week after that, Ben, is UFC 242. Now, that's over there in Abu Dhabi. The main card kicks off at 2 p.m. Eastern on pay-per-view, also known as noon here in the One True Time Zone. Okay, I can dig that. Here's where things are going to get real weird. Are you ready for this? Uh-huh. The prelims are on FX. What? The prelims will be on FX beginning at noon Eastern, 10 a.m. here in the One True Time Zone. That's a flashback right there, my friend. How? We're going what? back to the Fox era. How? You got me. Because you got a bunch of crazy fucking... Wikipedia says the prelims are on ESPN. They said on FX on the broadcast. Also, Wikipedia tells me that the prelim card, Chad, looks like this. You got Liana Jujua versus Sarah Moraes. You got Otman Azatar versus Timu Pakalin. You got Khalid Taha versus Bruno Gustavo Aparacido da Silva. And then the big one, this is slated right now, at least the way Wikipedia has it lined up as the prelim main event, Don Madge versus TBD. We got a TBD There's on this There's a TBD. Thing? This thing's only a few weeks away. Man, what's, uh, what's Kama Worthy doing? Oh, shit. Here it is. This is from Yahoo News. UFC 242 prelims to air on FX due to ESPN scheduling conflict. That's from your boy Kevin Ioli. What the hell is even happening, man? It's crazy. It's a crazy world. A lot of channels. <laughs> That's you're just saying stuff? It's a crazy world. There's a lot of channels Just in saying. It? All right. It's not where I thought we were going, but okay. I mean, even according to our generally pretty crazy MMA live event schedule, these next few weeks are even more crazy. It's going to be saying. weird to show up at noon to watch uh, Poirier and, and Habib. Yeah. Uh, if you plan to show up at noon in my house, that's that's around the time on a Saturday when my children are in prime freakout mode. Yeah. So so we'll have to see if we're uh, what's what's up with that. Somebody's going to headbutt you in the mouth. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. I think we got a Bellator coming up this weekend. Uh, Mitrione versus Herotonov. Does that sound right? <laughs> you could tell me that any weekend, and I'd be like, okay, sure. Is it in uh, Thackerville? Matrion versus... Yeah, it's uh, August 24th. Karatanoff. So that is in Going down there five in days. Maybe Uncasville? Saturday. Where is it? Well, now you're asking the tough questions. It is Webster Bank Arena in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay. So there you go. Mark your calendars for that one. And then we'll be back. Uh, well, we'll be running our full... The full gamut of Patreon uh, properties this week. And then we'll be back a week from today for the normal co-main event podcast. We'll be looking ahead to what happens over there in China. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Now, there's been a lot of stories in the news lately about civil unrest over there. We get, well, in is, Hong Kong, yeah. Is all that taken care of? Are we good to go? <laughs> no, no, I don't think it's taken care of. <laughs> get taken care of? Are we still having the UFC? Do you want me to just uh, just let you know when it's taken care of? Yes. Shoot me a uh, an email. I'll have just taken care you'll of. You'll get a text and it'll just be like, BT Dub, China unrest, taken care of. Like, that'll be ominous. Yeah.